President Biden has fulfilled his promise of returning America to the Paris Agreement. He has also established the office of the U.S. Special Presidential Envoy for Climate and appointed John Kerry to it. And last month, he hosted a virtual climate summit to rally world leaders to combat the climate crisis. Did you know that the United States, our country, the most powerful nation on Earth and the largest historical polluter of greenhouse gases, is in fact the only Western democracy not to have any laws on climate change. Hey there, news peelers. Today is May 21, 2021, and this is Adele with the Peel.News. Once a week, we select a news item and peel the history behind it to gain perspective from the past. <laughs> oh boy, sometimes history gives us a good laugh. Sometimes it offends. And sometimes it just it just shocks. Like, did that really happen? I'm telling you, you can't make up some of this stuff that happened in our past. So grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink or both. And let's get into it. As Vice President, Mr. Biden spearheaded President Obama's cancer moonshot. Ms. Jennifer Granholm, our current U.S. Secretary of Energy, calls President Biden's climate policy now our generation's moonshot. But the New York Times says that this is another Hail Mary. Regardless of what we wish to call President Biden's climate policy, the fact remains that he aims to cut our country's carbon emissions by half their 2005 level, by 2030, a mere nine years from now. In his virtual climate summit last month, he told 40 world leaders this is a moral imperative, an economic imperative. President Biden's goals and proposals for the summit on climate are detailed in a White House fact sheet. <laughs> it is a long fact sheet, and we have provided a link to it in the caption of this podcast episode. The following words in that long fact sheet captured our attention. The need for unprecedented global cooperation. The Wall Street Journal suggests that unprecedented global cooperation, the very thing that Mr. Biden hoped to bring about by hosting his climate summit, the linchpin to any success in combating climate change, may be elusive because, in part, China and India, two of the world's biggest carbon emitters now, shall we say, are less than eager to cut the carbon cord too soon. To understand what America has done to combat climate change, what example we have set for the rest of the world now that we wish to lead the world on this monumental effort, and how other countries compared to the U.S. in their commitments and past efforts to combating climate change, 
We spoke with David Takash. Mr. Takash is a professor at UC Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco. His scholarly work addresses forest carbon offsetting, biodiversity conservation law, environmental and ecological democracy, rights for nature, and the human right to water. He is the author of the book titled The Idea of Biodiversity. He has been a consultant for international NGOs and U.S. government agencies, analyzing legal and policy issues pertaining to global climate change and to reducing emissions from deforestation and forest degradation. In 2017, he received the Rudder Award for Outstanding Teaching. But as you will note in my interview with him, when it comes to climate change, there's so much more to Mr. Takash than his achievements as a law professor. Way more. He's been there. He's seen it. And he has studied it. Scientifically studied it. Links to his homepage and many publications are provided in the detailed caption of this podcast episode. So stay with me as Professor Takash and I peel the history behind this news. This podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms, including Spotify, Google, and Apple. And if you're listening to us on Apple, please write us a review. And don't keep it to yourself. Tell a friend about the Peel.News podcast. Professor Takash, it is such a pleasure to have you on our show today. I'm very excited for our conversation. Thank you for taking the time for it. We usually dive into the history behind news, the substance of our conversation. But today I want to do something a little bit different, if I may, something that I haven't done with our previous guests. That is to ask you about your academic and professional background, because because it uniquely qualifies you to provide dimension and depth to the topic of climate change because you've been there. So I'm, I'm all ears uh, to, to learn about your fascinating path here. Uh, I have a rather strange path to being a law professor. I have an undergraduate degree in biology and a PhD in history of science where I wrote a PhD dissertation and a book about the history of the idea of biodiversity. In fact, um, I worked as a Peace Corps volunteer in Senegal in forestry and saw the effects of drought uh, up close in West Africa. Uh, I uh, came to the law mid-career. I had been teaching undergraduates for about 10 years and decided to go to law school to gain this particular credential. And I have a, a, both a JD and an advanced LLM degree in international law where I was looking at uh, climate change, especially forest carbon offsets and the, goal, the role of trees and other plants in potentially offsetting carbon dioxide emissions. And since 2010, I've been teaching at UC Hastings College of the Law, among other things. I do teach climate change law here. You, you, you have multiple degrees that, that, that you know, the, the, the thing that comes to mind is I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I'm, I'm particularly intrigued about your Peace Corps experience. Um, is that something that you had planned on or was it something that something happened that inspired you to join Peace Corps? Uh, yeah, I had when I was an undergraduate, I was interested. I actually have a specialization in animal behavior and I had the opportunity when I was an undergraduate to spend five months in Ken, uh, Kenya 
watching baboons and studying baboons with professors and graduate students who, have, who were studying baboons. And one of the things that happened during that time was I became extremely interested in the interaction between uh, international uh, development and international human rights and international environmental issues. That is to say, if you're 20 years old and you show up in Kenya, it kind of opens up uh, a new world for you and it makes you realize that perhaps the world that you've experienced isn't necessarily the way the entire world works. And I, my whole career, I've been interested in this interaction between uh, social justice and environmental issues, particularly as they apply abroad. And that came from that experience when I was an undergraduate in Kenya. Uh, subject for a different podcast. A different, a different podcast. Right, right. No, no, no. This is what I was going to say. Yes, you're right. Uh, I'm learning, Professor Takash, that the subject of environmental uh, law and climate change is actually tied in really closely to human rights, especially when we talk internationally. But uh, so it's, it's, it's very interesting that you're working. Is there anything about your work? in the field on the ground in, in, in the forest of Senegal that sort of further impelled you, catapulted you to go on and get your PhD and get into law for that from that specific? Well, one of the things that was uh, interesting to me was thinking about, you know, I thought I knew the way the world works and I thought I knew a lot about conservation. And then you go to a small village in Senegal that's be, that is both a Muslim village that has a very uh, a, a different worldview than I had and a different view of their relationship to the land. And that is beset by environmental catastrophes that I could only, I'd only read about, but had, but was able to see, uh, unfortunately, up close. And that got me extremely interested both in working in this field at the intersection of international environmental and uh, human rights issues, uh, but also got me interested in how we think about such issues and who we are and how does our own worldview and our own background shape sometimes myopically the way we view particular issues. And climate change is perhaps the issue that we face as a species today that requires non-myopic thinking. And so I feel like part of my career has been trying to be as non-myopic as I possibly can in thinking about climate change. When we talk about myopic thinking, I'm going to be embarrassed here, bashful, uh, to ask you the following question. Uh, but but it's, 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 it's merited here. We see this all the time in the news, and sometimes sort of climate change or environmental grievances, like the fatigue sets in, you, you hear it. So going back to your experience that you were able to see, quote unquote, unfortunately, up close, the impact of the crisis, the environmental crisis, climate change, how much of this is hype? How much of this is real? I ask this not because it's just your study and your field, but because you've been there. Well, sir, well I two different answers to your question. First of all, I just want to make it clear that as far as I can understand or wrap my head around, there is no doubt that climate change is a real phenomenon. It is really caused by human beings and it is potentially catastrophic and by catastrophic to uh, ongoing sustained 
human civilization as we understand it. So that's one thing that I, I wanna say in answering the question. Part of the problem with climate change and convincing people about the reality of climate change or the need to do anything about it is that some of what we see, some of the impacts that we see is hard to attribute to climate change. So there's always been drought, for example, or there's always been hot weather, or there's always been hurricanes. So how can we actually attribute what we're seeing now to this human generated phenomenon? And that's part of one of the many reasons why it's so hard for people to take climate change seriously or to wrap their head around the need for action. Is there when you say always been drought, always been hurricanes, is there an acceleration associated with it? Uh, my, 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 my daughter and I are big fans of Greta Thunberg. So you see her right. Amazon. Again, I, I don't, I don't want to get into sort of the popular version of this, but she seems to be, she seems to have a point. Am I? Sure. In, in the last decade or two, scientists have become much better at what they call attribution science, being able to attribute particular uh, natural events to climate change or not to climate change. So for example, it seems very clear that there are certain storms, certain hurricanes that are much more powerful than they ever were because uh, ocean water is at record temperature, which allows for more uptake of, of, of moisture and more powerful storms, for example. So the hurricanes that have hit, Hurricane Sandy that hit New York or the hurricanes that have hit somewhere in the Gulf, they are better able to attribute that to record breaking heat in the ocean. Similarly, some of the wildfires that hit California last year, the 4 million, acre, 4 million acres of California that burned, scientists are better able to attribute this to record-breaking droughts, record-breaking temperatures that combine to create these somewhat unprecedented conditions. There have always been wildfires in California, but never like we've seen recently in places we've seen it to the extent that we've seen it. Is there... So, Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, please. No, no, please continue. You identified several uh, natural disasters that uh, could be attributed to climate change. Is there a single event or a theme of single events that scientists can point to and say, "Aha! Uh -huh, this is it. This is a hundred percent." climate change? Well, one of the, the, the most obvious one there is sea level rise. So uh, the, the, the oceans have risen by about 10 inches in the last century. And that comes from the fact that hotter, hot water expands. And as hot water expands, sea levels are going to rise, as well as ice melting is going to contribute to sea level rise. That is something that really would not have happened were the planet not warming. Um, so that's one very uh, that's one example of a something that you can pretty clearly uh, uh, attribute to uh, sea level rise. The the uh, hottest the ten hottest years on record have been in the last uh, last fifteen years, and by I say on record that means since eighteen fifty. Uh, if you were born after nineteen eighty eight, you've never lived a single month that was cooler than average. Every single month since nineteen eighty eight has been hotter than the average. So, 
it, it, all of the phenomena that scientists have predict will be seen from climate change do seem to be happening now. Has, has any of these ever happened in history that uh, naysayers would say, no, 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 we've gone through a little ice age, big ice age, whatever, is, is this just a repeat? Is this any of these symptoms of a repeating cycle? Uh, the symptoms do not seem to be from repeating cycles that anyone can understand. But you do point out, again, part of the problem is that there are oscillations in the Earth's climate. So one can say, oh, look, this is just a natural oscillation that's not caused by humans emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Uh, it, it would be, though, a bit beyond coincidence that everything that we predict that would happen when we've increased the amount, the percentage of carbon dioxide from 270 parts per million at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution to 420 parts per million today, everything that scientists would predict from that increase in the concentration of carbon dioxide happens to be occurring. That would be a pretty major coincidence of cause and effect to say, well, that's just natural oscillation. Really magical, almost confluence of all these yes, events. Yes, to total, uh, total magic, right. For, 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 for our listeners, if you don't mind, please just give a timeline for the, uh, for the, for the period in which the Industrial Revolution, which started at the end of the 1700s, really started to impact. Are we talking 1850s, 1860s? Yeah, usually, a, a lot of the, the, we started measuring things somewhat accurately, like temperature in the, in, around 1850. And so that's why often that's used as the yardstick or the timeline, because we have accurate measurements from that time. So... Scientists but they can, the, but so they can also scientists can also go back into the Earth's core and through various different uh, tree ring measurements, core measurements can can trace temperatures back to thousands of years. So there is, but not quite with the accuracy that they can do when we've had scientific measurements of those uh, modern day scientists. Got it. So for the last couple of cent, a uh, couple of uh, pardon me, decades, scientists have been have been better at attributing phenomena scientifically to climate change, such as 10 inches of rising seawaters. Pretty frightening, frankly, when you talk about that, if you happen to be living in Miami, right? When, when did people, people like me, non-scientists, when did they begin to realize, hey, something is wrong? Well, it depends on who people are. We've known, scientists have known since the beginning of the 1800s that something is up here, but those are isolated scientists in isolated mm -hmm. places. I trace back in the United States more widespread or at least a beginning awareness of this to the 1950s. The military was doing, was doing meteorolo meteorological experiments in the 1950s, part of the Cold War, in part to figure out how they could deliberately influence climate. How could you make drought or floods by seeding clouds, for example, as one weapon of warfare? So it's sort of ironic that from our deliberate experiments with climate manipulation, they gained an awareness of our undeliberate experiments in climate manipulation. So as early as, uh, 
as the late 1950s, there's been testimony before Congress. Roger Revelle was a UC San Diego climatologist who testified to Congress in the late 1950s. Look, this thing, climate change is real. Here's what causes it. Uh, it could turn parts of the United States into a desert if we don't do something about it. By the late 60s, um, by, by 1970, for example, there was extensive testimony before Congress about the effects of climate change. How much of this is impacting your average American? Well, that probably your average American wasn't particularly aware of this. It seemed to catch fire, if I may use that metaphor, in the late 1980s. In 1988, we had this um, <clears throat> catastrophic uh, heat wave and wildfire year, and it and scientists- in, in what part of the US, please? Uh, like you know, uh, Yellowstone, like for example, there's really mediagenic fires in Yellowstone okay. in places that had never happened before. And, and, and in large parts of the United States other than 1988. And this was a year where Time Magazine put the endangered earth on, it, on its cover. This was where people, it started to hit home that perhaps this was real. When you experience unprecedented heat or fire, you start to pay attention more broadly. It started to be when climate change made, the, made headline news, made cover of Time Magazine news. So I might date modern, more general awareness of climate change to about 1988. Which is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's 18 years after Earth Day, Correct. Wow. Correct. Interesting. Why don't we take a short break and then sure. talk about what was done? What was done after people recognized that there's something awry? We'll be right okay. back. So, Professor Takash, um, we talked about how there's a collective recognition, sort of a gradual, though, starts from the 1950s, there are congressional hearings, and it increases during the 70s, and you sort of pinpointed the date that, in your view, uh, a year that it really came to the fore uh, for people that something is wrong, uh, 1988. So we just, we, I, I asked you about people, but there's, a, there's, there's the elephant in the room, how did the politicians react? At what point did we start laws, regulations, legislation, executive? When did that start? <laughs> One cynical answer is never, but, but I, I'll, be, <laughs> I'll, I'll be less of, As early as 1978, under President Carter, there was a National Climate Program Act. And all that did was it established a... Um, an office within the Department of Energy to do research on climate in a serious way. Again, that doesn't mean that you or I ever had to do anything. It just sort of, it spurred ongoing research in, and gave a small budget to researchers who would actually figure out what's going on. 1992 was the year that the United Nations sponsored a global uh, environmental summit in Rio de Janeiro, where President Bush, the older President Bush, was compelled to go. And what one of the things that emerged from that- I love the way you say that, compelled to go. He, 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 <laughs> apparently, he did, not, he did not especially want to go, although I will note that the last 
major pollution laws in the United States were in 1990, amendments to the Clean Air Act, not about greenhouse gases, but about more traditional pollutants that President Bush was an enthusiastic endorser of. So I don't mean to cast aspersions, but he did, United Nations international conferences have long been uh, controversial in American political circles. We don't necessarily trust the United Nations. And this was to be this international gathering where the United States was to be maybe one of the uh, enemies of global environmental progress. So there was enemies. Some, some, uh, some political pressure not to attend this summit, but he did attend the summit. And what came from that summit was the, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. A framework convention is something that names general principles about how the international community is going to do whatever it is it's going to do. In this case, what are the general principles that are gonna govern our coordinated response to climate change? President Bush, the elder, signed that and the US Senate ratified that framework convention. We are still members of the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. It didn't require us to do anything at the time. It simply said, we're in the game and we're gonna to continue to participate and talk about that. The rubber hits the road five years later in 1997. And this was where in Kyoto, Japan, world leaders met to sign and discuss and negotiate the Kyoto Protocol. This was the follow-up to the 1992 convention. And this, a protocol in international treaty terms tends to be where you actually have to start doing something. Where you're not- I, I know, I'm getting excited too. I dropped my headphones out of my ears. Where you're not simply talking, but you actually have to take action. And under the Kyoto Protocol, the proposal was that developed nations, including the United States, would cut their greenhouse gases 5% below 1990 levels by 2012. All of the developed nations of the world signed and ratified the Kyoto Protocol, except the United States. In fact, the United States Senate voted 95 to nothing to compel, to compel us never to be part of any international convention that would require us to cut our greenhouse gases unless developed nations like China and India and Mexico and Brazil and South Korea at the time, unless they had mandatory reductions too. So under the Kyoto Protocol, only Western Europe, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States had obligations to actually decrease our greenhouse gas emissions. Other nations, the developing nations, did not have those requirements. This has continued to be a source of, the major source of friction as the, as the international community attempts to address this problem. Who has to do what is the big question here. So the United States never ratified the Kyoto Protocol along with Southern Sudan, Andorra and the Vatican. We're the nations that have never ratified the Kyoto Protocol. So we still never ratified the Kyoto Protocol. Professor Takar, yes. tell me the year for that Senate vote again, Nin please. 1997. So President 
Clinton is in office. President Clinton. And in 1997, well, the vote you said is 90 something? 95 to nothing. Oh, it, it doesn't even matter who's majority. That means plenty of Democrats voted against this. That's correct. That's correct. I don't know who the five people were who were absent. <laughs> the holdouts. I, I, I should have I should have looked that up before this. Before Probably from I, Vermont, huh? Yeah. So is enough. You I would have never thought that. So Democrats were okay. Cor- correct. Um, when when I asked you about political politics, you know how how did politicians react to this climate change? I noted an interesting beginning in your answer, the date. You said 1978, and you started from there, and we went all the way to the Kyoto Protocol. Is, is, is the establishment of the EPA in 1970 by Nixon and all of that, that that's, that's not really for climate change, is it? That's more right. like, go ahead, the, please. The Environmental Protection Agency came from the National Environmental Policy Act. NEPA, as you may, some of your listen, listeners may have heard of it, heard of it. And what NEPA, NEPA did two big things. One, it created the Environmental Protection Agency, but also it established the requirement for environmental impact statements if the federal government is going to do take major actions that might impact local communities' environment. Also, during the Nixon administration, we come up, we have the Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, and the Endangered Species Act. These are the big four environmental statutes that we still have today, and they're the four most important environmental statutes that we've ever passed, that Congress has ever passed in the United States. Nixon, as I tell my students, that Nixon, who was a Republican, was perhaps our greatest environmental president because under his auspices <laughs> came these four uh, came these four statutes. The Clean Air Act at the time, as politicians were thinking about it, were thinking about the kind of pollutants that you can see when you live in Los Angeles and you can't see to the other side of the street because of smog. That's the kind of air pollution that politicians were thinking about at the time. They were not as concerned or aware of or thinking about greenhouse gases, which you can't see, which don't affect your daily life, which don't affect your child's ability to breathe or your child's development of asthma. I see. That, that that puts that puts the EPA and NEPA in perspective. I I think it's uh, very important for Americans to appreciate that it was actually a Republican president, so that Correct. there are things that don't need to be partisan all the time. Correct. I remember from law school that many important environmental cases went up to the U.S. Supreme Court. Correct. Okay, but I don't remember if whether or not the Supreme Court played any crucial, pivotal role in sort of a landmark decision. And let me give you an, an, an example by analogy. For example, in 2008, uh, Justice Scalia, uh, the late Justice Scalia, wrote an opinion in which he said, gun rights, owning firearms as an individual is not necessarily connected to, to, um, to being part of a militia. So that changed the entire discussion on gun rights. So what I'm wondering is, are there a series of Supreme Court cases or a Supreme Court case that made all the difference? There is one Supreme, there there have been a couple of Supreme Court cases on climate change that have made a difference. But the one 
really important one, the one landmark one that would be the equivalent of the case that you just named is the 2007 Massachusetts versus Environmental Protection Agency. In Massachusetts versus EPA, Massachusetts and a coalition of 11 other states sued the EPA, which under President George Bush the Younger had refused to regulate greenhouse gases as pollutants under the Clean Air Act. In Massachusetts versus EPA, two very important things came up that have changed the course of how the United States has dealt with greenhouse gases for the last 14 years. First, part of the problem in constitutional law is that you have to have standing to be able to argue a case. And part of the problem with climate change is you have to suffer an injury caused by something that someone else did that would be redressable by a favorable opinion of the court. Was and it hard to prove an injury here? It is very hard to prove it, or it is potentially hard to prove an injury because so many of the injuries that climate change brings are in the future. They are not actual <laughs> or imminent. Uh, they're not actual or imminent, which is part of the language for how you can prove an injury. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court ruled five to four that, for example, California's current and future loss of snowpack, Massachusetts' current and future loss of coastline would count as an injury and that states would have standing to sue. That's the a big second, win. That is a big win and that has continued that, and that this is still good law. Uh, the second important thing that came from this case was even though Congress has never said that greenhouse gases are pollutants, for the purpose of the Clean Air Act. Nonetheless, the Supreme Court holds that greenhouse gases do fit the definition of pollutants under the Clean Air Act. And thus that gave the EPA at least the right to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act, which they have done for the last 14 years with the brief uh, break during the Trump administration, which we can talk about later if you'd like to talk about that. And that so, that's, so that's this crucial, that's the seminal Supreme Court case that has allowed administrative branch EPA regulation of greenhouse gases as pollutants. In that case, five to four case, were there any surprises, Republican nominated justices that switched to uh, sort of quote unquote the environmental side. This uh, was the Roberts Court. This no. was the Roberts Court. Yeah, yes, Roberts yes. was very much in the uh, minority. On minority. That okay. Case were that case to be held today, uh, uh, to be uh, Roberts has persistently said he believes that case was impermissible. It was incorrectly I see. decided. So it is not clear were that case to be reheard today, or whether there would be a follow up case. Would that would that come out the same way? I see now that the court is 6-3. We'll be back after a short break to talk about other countries. And you started talking about the Kyoto Treaty. I'm very keen to talk about the international Great. scene and climate Great. change. Great. Thank you so much. Great. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. And it's easy. Just click the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. 
And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and attributions to our theme music. And thank you. So, Professor Takash, we got into talking about four important environmental legislation by by the Republican president, uh, President Nixon. I'm familiar with them, actually, from my uh, days in law school. Now, I'm a little rusty, but I don't recall any of them being, you know, you say those four are important. I don't recall any of them being about climate. What is our climate law? We, we climate change. Have- we don't have one. We're the only Western, we are the only Western democracy that does not have a climate change law. That is to say, perhaps the great, gravest existential threat to the ongoing human civilization, the United States does not have a law that directly addresses that. In 2009, the House of Representatives passed a law that was, it's this mammoth law, over a thousand pages that would have pretty comprehensively addressed climate change in the United States. At the time, there were six, there was a, a Democratic president, Obama, and 60 Democratic senators in the Senate never took it up. Obama did not ever uh, uh, lobby for them to do so, and that bill disappeared. And since then, we still have no climate change law. That is to say, any regulation of greenhouse gases happens under the Environmental Protection Agency, unelected bureaucrats making rules about regulating climate change without explicit direct authority from Congress to do so, except for under the Clean Air Act, which says nothing about greenhouse gases or, uh, or climate change. <clears throat> Realistically speaking, how much of a deficit is it that we don't have a law an enacted law passed through Congress and signed by a U.S. president? Well, there's a couple of different deficits there. One is when you have action that's taken by the executive branch like that, it will always depend on who the executive actually is. And so, again, I'm trying not to be partisan here, and not, but it is true that Under the four years of President Trump, the Environmental Protection Agency worked very hard to undermine any regulation of greenhouse gases. That's a fact. Just just so I understand, to undermine through agencies that belong to the executive branch itself, because we don't have a law. So Congress- That is is correct. The Environmental Protection Agency is under the heading, uh, it serves the president, uh, works at the behest of the president's direction. So this makes climate change. So we're not talking about uh, endangered species or clean water. Climate change, it makes climate change an extremely political issue because presidents have so much power over it. Precisely. That is correct. Fascinating. Now, presidents will will always, even for the other environmental statutes, presidents will have power on the extent on how the Clean Water Act is implemented during those four years of the Clean Air Act or the Endangered Species Act. But for something like climate change, where there is no directing statute with explicit language and explicit programs, it leaves things much more to the 
political whims of the party that is in control of the Environmental Protection Agency and the other executive branch agencies. This, this, <laughs> I'm, again, I'm embarrassed to admit this, but this was a big revelation to me that we don't have a climate change wall uh, and, and it didn't, it wasn't passed through President Obama, a Democratic uh, president's uh, term. How come this specific yet very important facet is not in the news that much? I don't think, I bet you if I asked people, my friends, they wouldn't, they wouldn't know that. They'd be like, I tell me I have all these laws. What do you mean? Um, I can't answer that yeah, question. <laughs> it was a rhetorical I, I, question, I, sir. I, I think I think you know citizens to the extent that they understand laws that exist, they understand laws that exist that affect their lives. But it would be hard to. It, it's hard to understand what laws don't exist because a law that doesn't exist, it's hard to know how the absence of the law might be affecting exactly. your life, yeah, yeah. right? So, yeah, I follow that, um, yeah. Professor Takash. We we were talking about. The U.S., uh, you know, what, what laws we have and, and the presidential power over the EPA. Uh, and, and the news talks about the EPA and, and what's happening here in the U.S., the fires and all the catastrophes. But climate change is, doesn't really have borders, Correct. whether it's icebergs melting or... Uh, and I'm not joining the drama of the moment. I think I shared with you that uh, I was in uh, Alaska and we've gone to Canada and my family and have hiked and we've literally seen the receding and the, the postmarks that show the receding of, of, of glaciers. This is pretty catastrophic. So let's go back to, to, to that revealing uh, conversation that we had that, about Kyoto. So the Senate says, we're not going to do anything unless... All the other countries come on board to the same level as us. Am I, do I have that correct? That yes, the developing countries would have to take some kind of mandatory actions to try to reduce their greenhouse gases as well. That China shouldn't get away with continued, with continued unfettered growth and unfettered uh, greenhouse gas emissions. If if we have to do something about uh, climate change, so should China and India. And this is in the 1990s. So what happens next, internationally speaking? Uh, okay. So uh, most countries, the developed countries that si signed and ratified the Kyoto Protocol actually did meet their obligations. The EU met their obligations. They reduced their greenhouse gases to more than 5% below 1990 levels by 2012. Um, so meanwhile, you have a whole bunch of different things happening. One is... China and India and Brazil and Mexico and South Africa and South Korea are becoming are becoming much more aggressive greenhouse gas emitters. As their economies are developing, they are emitting greenhouse gases and contributing to climate change. So there's that in the background. Um, when it was thought that there would be a successor to the Kyoto Protocol, which expired in 2012, and nations of the world failed to come up with a successor. That is to say, 2012 rolled around, Kyoto expires, there is no successor treaty, mostly because there's a lot of reasons why not, but mostly because of this intractable debate between developed countries and developing countries as to who has to do what and how aggressively. There's also a divide between 
developing, I'm using scare quotes, which your, reader, your, your listeners can't see, between developing countries like China and India and very poor developing countries, for example, island, Pacific Island nations that were going to disappear with sea level rise. So whereas in 1997, China and India joined with all of these much poorer countries, now by 2012, there were divisions even between that coalition. So simply nations of the world could not agree on a binding treaty that would bind whomever to do whatever. They simply failed to negotiate a follow-up. So that leaves us with no follow-up treaty. Kyoto, Kyoto expires and we have to figure out what to do next. There was no international cooperation on the issue or at least binding international cooperation on the issue. And I can go on if you'd like. Where does the Paris Treaty that's, fit in, well, in, in this? So that's the next step. So there's no successor to Kyoto. So negotiators go back to the table and try to figure out a different approach. The, 19, the 2015 Paris Agreement is that different approach. What the Paris Agreement does is asks for all of the nations of the world to come to the table and name a nationally determined contribution of voluntarily what is your nation going to do to solve this problem. The Paris Agreement sets as a goal that global temperatures will not go above, raise above two degrees centigrade, that's about three and a half degrees Fahrenheit, above pre-industrial levels, hopefully less than that, but two degrees centigrade was what we all agreed upon. And everyone has to voluntarily step up and say, this is what we're gonna do, this is what we're going to do. These are non-binding commitments. No one is going to hold you responsible if you don't do what you say you're going to do, but this was the best that we could do to try to get through national pride or national shame, people to come forward and say, here's what we're gonna do, Sweden. Here's what we're gonna do, China. Here's what we're going to do, Madagascar. Whatever the country is, here's how we're gonna contribute to cooperatively solve this problem in a voluntary way. It's voluntary and they sort of proffer, they put forward their own, what they believe is, yeah, what what they believe is fair for them or what they could do. Correct. Um, this doesn't sound so exciting. It doesn't seem like it has any teeth. <laughs> Am I? Well, it, 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 it does. That is correct. It has no teeth. If by teeth you mean something that is enforceable or something that yeah, is. Yeah, that's what I mean. Or something that there would be tangible repercussions if you failed to do it. In that way, it has no teeth. But part of international law is it tends to work, you know, that way. Through, even with the Kyoto Protocol. Canada didn't meet its Kyoto Protocol obligations, but it's not like the United Nations is going to send an army into Canada and invade for failing to do that. There was not like Canada is going to be fined in any way for failing to meet its obligations. The Paris Agreement is simply voluntary. It's a hopeful document that that is based on cooperation, voluntary cooperation, not mandatory uh, requirements with any kind of penalty for failing to meet what you say you're going to do. So 
following on that example of Canada, that hypothetical right, right, example right. of Canada being a good guy or a bad guy, I appreciate that we didn't sign on to Kyoto and opted out of the Paris uh, Agreement. We, we, now, we, now, Obama, we did opt into the Paris Agreement. President Obama did commit us to, to greenhouse gas emission reductions under the Paris Agreement. And, and then Mr. Trump- uh, He renounced that, we yeah. withdrew, and President Biden has just rejoined us to the Paris Agreement. Note that it is called an agreement and not a convention. It's not a treaty, it's not a protocol. It's called an agreement because an agreement has no meaning in international law. So President Obama did not have to submit this to the United States Senate to ratify it. So, so that's the reason why this is called the Paris Agreement and not the Paris Treaty, because nations of the world, especially the United States, could participate without having to go through formal channels back home to get the thing ratified by your domestic government. That's very clever. Uh, so we're talking about the Kyoto Treaty and the Paris Agreement. Sort of one question that I have, underlying question, has the U.S. been a good player? Uh, no. So, so again, I, I, for your listeners, I, I'm trying to offer facts and not opinion. Here. So okay. When, yeah. I, so, so I do yeah. want to. So, but truthfully, no, you just intrigued me. You're talking about this. So, we are the most powerful nation on earth. So, so I'm just wondering, so, have we been so a good player or I, not? I will say that it is a fact that we have not been a good player in international climate change law and negotiations that we've had moments of being a good player, but in general, we have not been a good player. We, I don't know how else to put it, but if, you, if you're one of the three nations with Andorra and South Sudan that refuses to ratify the Kyoto Protocol, <laughs> and then you renounce, and then you're, depending on who's in office, whether or not you do anything about climate change internationally is gonna depend, which is part of why in 2021, nations of the world are justifiably skeptical of President Biden's new climate change commitments because foreign leaders and foreign citizens recognize that, well, it's kind of going to depend on what happens in 2024, whether the next president uh, follows what Ooh. President Biden is proposing. I want to cap our conversation on um, the international aspects of climate change with this question that sort of naturally follows. Is there an element of fairness here where China and India say, whoa, 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 you know, Britain, uh, the United States, you had you developed your nation all these years since the 1800s and first half of the 20th century, you've been polluting. Now that it's our turn to catch up, you're telling us to, yeah. you've, you've got religion all of a sudden. Is, is, is that it? Right. So absolutely. So it's all about fairness, but it's all about how you view fairness. Okay, let's just, let's, let's narrow the conversation to China and the United States for now. Sure. The United States is the largest historical polluter of greenhouse gases. If you look at the total number of tons that various different nations of the world have put into the atmosphere since 1850, we're the biggest contributor to pollution. So you can look at the United States if you are a different country and say, you should be doing the most now 
to reduce your greenhouse gas, gas emissions. You should be paying the most now to clean up the pollution that you've caused. You should be paying the most now to hope, help other nations adapt to the damages caused by climate change. But at the same time, China in 2021 is currently the world's leading greenhouse gas polluter. So you can look at China and say, you should be taking much more aggressive actions to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. And China can say what you just introduced China as saying, which is, but look, you all developed, you polluted the global atmospheric commons without paying for the cost of your ex externalities. It's our turn to catch up. And you can, China can look at the United States and say, look, even though we're now the leading greenhouse gas polluter, your average American citizen is still responsible for more greenhouse gases per capita than we are. So you're still in some ways the leading greenhouse gas polluter. And you can go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth on what's fair. And but this sets it up for partisan brinksmanship because let's say Democrats say we need to do something about climate change and Republicans or conservatives make them say, no, 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 look at China right now, today. And, and there's all these different ways to say what's fair. We are generally at a stalemate here on what's fair. And at the end of the day, the atmosphere doesn't care who is the historical or the current or the per capita yeah. contributor. The atmosphere is the atmosphere and the planet will do what the planet wants while we are at brinksmanship as to who should do what. So, exactly. so perfect justice can lead us to perfect catastrophe on the climate change front. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Takash as we get into the perspective. Professor Takash, it's nearly impossible to stay sort of apathetic about climate. And uh, after our conversation, I get it. People get passionate. I think at one point I told you about uh, all my camping trips and road trips, which is not any different than anyone else. It's just something I enjoy. But having done that, I've been to a lot of small towns. Uh, so climate change exciting let's go do it what happens to that miner in in a small town in west virginia what happens to that civil engineer woman that works for a you know a real estate development company they're going to lose their jobs i guess what i'm trying to ask is are we bringing them in to the conversation what's that's that's re that's real right right so you're you're identifying one of the major uh, impediments to actually action on climate change in the United States. It is a fact that to reduce our greenhouse gases means fundamentally restructuring parts of our economy. How we heat our homes, how we drive our cars, how we power our industries, what industries get to exist and what industries don't get to exist. There are winners and losers in that reorganization. A low carbon future will reward some people in some places and will 
penalize some people in some places. And if you are feeding your family because you, are, uh, you work in the coal industry or the oil industry or industries that depend upon fossil fuels, you are likely to lose. That's fact. And that's part of why this is such a difficult conversation. Now I'm going into an opinion right here. So just to be clear, this is why we need to talk about, in my opinion, a just transition. There has to be some, if we are going to move into a low carbon or no carbon future, there have to be programs and incentives to help workers who are just trying to feed their families and pay their mortgages to transition to a different way of making a living that is a low carbon way of making a living. And this is why when people talk about, for example, the Green New Deal, this is why something like the Green New Deal contains all kinds of social programs that we don't normally think should be connected to the problem of climate change, but in my opinion, must be connected if we are all together as a nation and as a planet to move forward on these issues. Without referring to President Biden's uh, upcoming legislation, right? Um, upcoming uh, programs. C correct. Correct. Now, he doesn't call it a Green New Deal, but much of what President Biden is proposing links climate change to job retraining, to job core, mm -hmm. to, to, to this kind of thing, to help mm -hmm. people who would be, frankly, losers in a transition not be losers. Since we are in the in the realm of opinions, I want to ask your opinion about about this transition and 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 the people that are going to be losers as far as communication to them. Do you think environmentalists, the proponents of of combating climate change, do you think they have reached out? to these to be losers historically? Is that something that is lacking? And that's a question, it's not a suggestion, I literally don't know. Um, that's a complicated question. And I believe that, again, I'm gonna give a, this, we could talk, you could have a several hour podcast on that question <laughs> that you just asked, right? So, I, so I'm, giving I you a I'm giving you a shallow answer and you should follow up somewhere else. But in some ways, some environmentalists for some number of years have focused on the environmental problem. We've got to do something about climate change. What matters is reducing greenhouse gases. How are you going to- okay. Focus, focus, focus. Focus, yeah. focus, focus. Yeah. But there's- the fact that they have not built these coalitions that you would be talking about is evidence of a failure to reach out and build those coalitions. Yeah. If those coalitions had been successfully built, we wouldn't perhaps be at this political standstill. I don't want to blame environmental activists. Yep, yep, yep. I, we, we got to a point that where we were talking about the real impact of what happens in Washington. And, uh, and, and there are, and on the other side, there's a lot of disinformation campaigns out there about 
climate change, what it means, what it is. There's a famous uh, tweet from, from Donald Trump before he was president, the concept of global warming was created by and for the Chinese in order to make US manufacturing non-competitive. There's a lot of documented misinformation that reaches people about the myth of climate change, about what's going to happen to people about. So there's, yes, there has been some failure for climate change activists to build the coalitions that they need, but there's also a lot of political forces against them in trying to build those coalitions. Professor Takash, what I'm going to do is uh, after this podcast, I'm going to reach out to you and hopefully you can share with me maybe a couple of movies, documentaries or books for our listeners to go see. And I'll provide links in our in the detailed caption of our uh, podcast for them to follow up. Uh, I certainly been educated. Uh, is there anything else? Uh, any more? You've... <laughs> shared so much with uh, Professor Takash. Yeah, you have to have me back for ten other uh, podcasts to talk about I different certainly di different different aspects of this because I obviously I could go on forever. On thank this. well, yeah. Professor Takash. Thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel News anytime, and to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us. What's your perspective? The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News, we peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective for our current events. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving comments about this episode on our Instagram page at thepeel.news. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele with Appeal.News. <laughs>